to other marketers out there. I wasn't a social media expert per se, but I had the skill set and the framework that I've learned from previous jobs and previous roles. And to date, I think one of my biggest achievements that I'm still very proud of is that we grew our social channels by 200% organically. What that tells you in a marketing peripheral, you know, and, and grand scheme of things is that customers were engaging with us and we found a winning formula to talk to our customers, right? Welcome to Winning with Data Driven Marketing Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Waz.ai Market Research. I'm Julie, your host in this podcast, and in every single episode, we talk to industry leaders, marketers, and growth experts in Asia about how to use data to enhance the ROI in their marketing activities. We bring you real case studies while giving you background on how these leaders build their career to where they are today. We'll bring you to our speaker shortly after a quick word from our sponsor. Was.ai Market Research is an AI-powered digital research platform that can help you understand your target customer as quick as 24 hours from as low as $1,000. For those who are having questions about what your target customer think about your brand, your ads, or your product, you are guaranteed reliable findings that can help you build better branding, advertising campaign, and launch a more successful product. Find out more at www.base.ai. It's www.base.ai. And use promo code PODCAST to get your first 10% off. Now, back to the show. So, today joining me is Janina, Country Marketing Head of Big Pay. Nina has extensive experience in digital marketing, customer acquisition, and retention. At BigPay, she has led high-impact projects that include working with the Malaysia government to increase financial inclusion for low-income groups. She has also built strategic partnership with mega brands such as AirAsia, Shopee, Zalora. She is very passionate about creating marketing strategies that drive growth and increase customer engagement. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome, Nina. Hi, Julie. First of all, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here, um, to be having this conversation today. I'm very excited. Me too. Nina, oh, when I look at your LinkedIn, right, one thing definitely stood out to me. You graduated with a legal degree. But in all your career choices, you seem to know marketing is the exact place you want to be. Now, it's not frequent to see a switch, but such a consistent switch. So uh, I would love to, if you can tell us, you know, take us back to your career starting point and share with us, how do you get to where you are today? I knew this question was going to come up because this is something that I get asked very frequently um, in person, you know, at events and whatnot. But um, yeah, you know, I think, honestly, I always knew I was going to be a lawyer. I never knew I was going to be a marketer. And that's my most honest answer that I'll give you. Um, you know, when you were a kid, you know, everyone has to fill in your report cards and there's this three options of um, your 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 yes. career, what you wanted to do. And lawyer was always in the mix, right? I, growing up in an Asian household, it meant lawyer, engineer, doctor. Um, there was That was not imposed on me, just to clarify. It was something that I knew I wanted to. And I just had this really deep, strong conviction and, and leaning in towards a career in legal. 
And it was because I couldn't stop talking um, as a kid. I was very talkative as well. My parents were always like, you know, you probably should be the next Ellie McBeal or, you know, consider a career in, you know, Boston public or whatnot. And, um, you know, I think for me, it was just so, it, it's also quite bizarre um, because I never saw myself in a marketing career, to, to, to be honest. And so what had actually sparked that or, or kind of propelled me into that trajectory uh, essentially is, I think, curiosity. I, I have always been a curious child um, to begin with. I always want to know what's on the other side of the coin. I always challenge precepts and, and concepts, right? Um, and I think for me is also being at the forefront, liking to experiment a lot. Um, and I think those are naturally, essentially DNA of marketers, right? Um, experimenting, curiosity, um, having the room to sort of play around a little bit more. And I think my interest in tech-based companies land in, in, in this kind of industries where it changes a lot. I think the interest was always there. And as I grew up and grew into my own element, I had opportunities that propelled me and which eventually landed me there. So it was taking a risk, essentially, having a strong conviction and knowing your personality type. Uh, you can take multiple personality tests, by the way, to, to kind of figure these things out. Um, and having that unique experiences to experiment, to, to test, um, and to, you know, be in the front line of game-changing industries, that all spelled marketing for me. Um, and so when I went into the, the field, I fell in love with the process and I, I stayed there. Nice. Uh, awesome. I, I definitely see that in order to be a successful marketer, you know, the willingness to experiment and the the long-lasting curiosity is so important because it keeps changing. It does. It really does. And I think just to elaborate a little bit more, right, uh, maybe just to give you a vantage point in terms of how I started exactly from legal and then pivoted into marketing per se. Um, I started out in legal and legal is a very, very niche, a very specific skill set. Um, and 90% of my batchmates actually have left the industry. There are about 10% of them actually practicing. And when we have these little reunions, um, I think the common connotation that I hear from my ex-classmates are that, you know, you're one of the lucky ones that had such a strong conviction and knew uh, that you were going to pivot. And the fact that we're at an outsider standpoint looking at you and your trajectory is that it seems like you make a decision that paid off. You know, how did you know you wanted to venture out and, you know, legal into marketing is a huge switch. And I had no, you know, theoretical education in, in, in marketing and what's not, whatnot. It was a learn on the job kind of situation, and it was a it was a paid education, I would call it. Um, so I think for me, how it started is literally someone took a chance on me, um, and gave me an an opportunity in a corporate communications role first, and I said yes without hesitating because to me was what was the worst that could happen, right? If this didn't pan out in one to two years. I could always go back to legal, right? I could just pay the nominal fee and, you know, still be a barrister and like, you know, go back to practice. And yeah, there's, there's always going to be it. But the opportunity to venture out and somebody seeing the potential or, you know, even, you know, prompting and nudging me in that direction was very rare and was a very good opportunity, which I'm glad I said yes to. And um, that opened the doors from experimenting, you know, learning everything in marketing, PR, crisis communications. ATL, BTL efforts, um, digital marketing, social media, everything under your marketing umbrella. I've learned it. I've done it. Um, and, and I think that was sort of the best decision and, and learnings that came with. And so that gave me an opportunity to sort of, you know, 
propel into tech companies. So when I learned all these skills in my first role in corporate communications, that was a publication arm. Um, that then propelled me into tech companies like video games and then eventually now in fintechs. Um, so in, in video games, right, I think the core of being a marketeer and in startup environments is you're always put in a situation of David and Goliath. And so mm -hmm. that people who don't know this story, David is the smaller player. He doesn't have much, you know, he doesn't have an armor. He can't even wear it. it it's, it's heavy. And Goliath is like this giant that comes in, you know, with strength and armor and he's equipped and he's, he looks like he's going to win it in, in two seconds. And so when you as a marketer go into industries that are in the front line of changing and, you know, you're competing for attention, you're competing for skin in the game, you're brand share. Um, and, you know, how do you tell a, biz, a, a business storytelling and, and get so much skin in the market and so much brand share value and whatnot? You have to be be like David. And so that allowed me the David skill sets of being agile, speed to market, and being very strategic in shots. Um, and that is essentially the core and essence of being a marketeer. And that, those are things that I learned um, being in a fintech company, being in a games company. And, um, you know, essentially it grew and exponentially, you know, it's all the learning curve that is, has come to this date. And, um, and then I, I landed a role in big pay. So with big pay, it didn't look one-to-one, -one, by the way. When I, I didn't like go in there and get my ideal dream job, you know, I got everything. Sometimes opportunity comes to you in disguise and they are not one-to-one, -one, 100%, but you've got to say yes and take that leap of faith and go ride it out, right? So I started as a social media campaigns manager. So I did all of the things and a relearning like crisis communication. How do we put a product announcement out? How do we build a go-to marketing plan in fintech? especially when there's regulation by Bank Nagara, central bank. So it's, it's, it's some of the parameters in protocol. Um, and I, for, uh, for me, I think to, to other marketers out there, I wasn't a social media expert per se, but I had the skill set and the framework that I've learned from previous jobs and previous roles. And to date, I think one of my biggest achievements that I'm still very proud of is that we grew our social channels by 200% organically. What that tells you in a marketing peripheral, you know, and, and grand scheme of things is that customers were engaging with us and we found a winning formula to talk to our customers, right? And for me, from that role, I then identified other opportunities, whether it was in partnerships um, and I, you know, I propelled myself and, and put myself to do the things that was unglamorous and nobody wanted to do. And I, did, I built a lot of things from scratch. And so when you pair up all of these experiences from social media and campaigns, from a partnership standpoint, you learn the art of managing internal, external. So internal would be your cross-pollination, whether it's working with your risk team, your compliance team, your operations in mark, uh, product, you know, and externally, it's managing your vendors, your partners, your stakeholders, and you bring it all together. That's landed me in the exact role that I sit today because I literally have a bird's eye view and so much experience, you know, together. Um, and you, you sort of like, you look at the business and you're like, okay, so now here's where I sit. This is where the business is going to, and this is what the business needs. And this is how I make a decision. And this is how we propel and we continue to grow in the market. This is definitely inspiring, especially for uh, marketers who actually sometimes starts like at the place that they don't know how to do. Uh, but it also shows that when you're willing to learn and really put in all the effort, you will actually grow to, to a place that they want to be. And talking about peak pay, I actually wanted to focus on your role there. So you touch on so many different marketing stuff just now. 
Uh, and I think in Big Pay Alone, you actually touch on a lot of different elements. So what are some of the most effective marketing strategies that you have used? So marketing strategies in relation to growth uh, or campaigns or... Let's start with growth. Okay. So I think, you know, marketing strategies, it, it really, really looks at what your objective is, right? So if this is, for example, um, a mission uh, for for more awareness campaign, right? You're looking at an acquisition play, brand awareness and acquisition. Um, you would be looking at an at ATL kind of effort. And ATL efforts obviously would look at, you look at your business metrics, your goals, and you look at your campaigns and, and your strategies at hand. Um, and then obviously you also look at uh, research and data and then you build something, uh, you, build, you build a go-to-market plan. And it's also very important because for ATL kinds of strategies, they are generally a broader, a larger net, right? You're casting a wider net. You're not doing very, very niche targeted conversions. You're doing much more of like, hey, look at me or look at us. We are here in the market and we've got a great product that we think could be good enough added value to you or who could, or could benefit you. Right, so these are USPs and, and these are stuff, and I think the most important part is to not do it like a salesman, but it's to do it with a very, very tinge of I think the added touch, magic touch of storytelling, because as a marketer, essentially your 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 the key secret sauce is to be able to tell stories and relate to your customers in a very emotional sense. Because believe it or not, especially for us, you know, as a fintech player, people say that money is a very logical thing. Uh, personally, I disagree. I think it's actually very, very emotional. So knowing how to relate, tell a story that makes your audience go, oh, yeah, shit. Like, you know, that's, that's something that I really relate to and that really that really hit the spot, right? Because that's, that's literally what I'm going through or that's a product that I feel like could actually help solve. And so when you marry all of this together, knowing a very clear objective, having your data sets in point, building the right strategies and, and knowing what you want to hit the nail and having a very clear defined outcome is what I would say is a secret, I mean, a strategic success to marketing campaigns and efforts. You mentioned storytelling as a very important tool. Uh, ultimately, everything, you know, we buy things through emotional context, but we rationalize it with our brain. But <laughs> how do you, so there's obviously different people uh, in the room, you know, making decisions about what storytelling is good, what resonates with people. So is that like a framework you have or some gut feeling or heuristic that you use to kind of decide, okay, this storytelling angle is good? So number one, I think sharing the metrics across, sharing your vision and, and doing the lobbying, the buy-in process is very, very important. And as a marketer, it means you need to have relationships across various departments. It does not mean you only um, market certain things to your audience or you only have relationships within your own division, right? So it means you need to have an understanding um, in terms of, you know, the, the, the vision that you're going to drive, the campaign you're going to drive, okay? We're going to tell this story and we're going to go with this positioning. You're going to have to justify and get the buy-ins from various product owners or tech, or, or tech or developers and say like, we feel that this is the right product mission, right? This is the right product fit to go to the market. And this is a mission that we're going to drive. Therefore, we're going to say we're going to empower users with financial access and financial literacy, for example. And these guys are going to go, 
yeah, okay, but can you elaborate why are you saying that? And yeah, great, we've got a couple of suite of products that we, we think that are good for this cohort. Can you justify why you, you think that you know this is what we need to focus on? Then comes in data earlier that I mentioned, right? And you tell them like, hey, we're looking at, you know, just, you know, the last quarter, there's just been an influx of a lot of people in gig economy that needs financial access and right. And we think that this product can really, really elevate um, how they receive salaries or how they receive payments and, and, and just the ease of access as they move around. Got it. Thank you for sharing. Is there like a case study that you can also share with us, either in growth, either in campaign, uh, that can also describe some of the effective marketing strategy that we have used before? Okay, this is a very, very interesting question. So um, I definitely have one top of mind that I know I'm very excited to you know walk you through. And I think this was the, the project with the Ministry of Finance Malaysia, right? So this was a project that was called Ipamula. And knowing very clearly um, what we wanted to do um, to win in the, in the market, right? So you had to be selected as, an, uh, as a player, as an e-wallet by the Ministry of Finance Malaysia mm-hmm. to distribute, um, to up, you know, cash distribution to up to 2 million youths, which is the Gen Z market. And in the height of it, we were in an endemic state. So we were still driving the digital payments and the cashless payments narrative. With this, it was a very tall order because you're looking at a sizable base of 2 million youths, right? And how are you going to talk to all 2 million youths? And how are you going to convince 2 million youths that you are the choice, the top of mind choice? And so when we got this, it was a very tall order, but I think the, the team just really got down to work very quickly. I think we were all wearing our David hats and we were like, okay, Goliath's coming. <laughs> and we, we were ready. We were ready to take it on. And I think that's what I love most about this, this experience. So we immediately knew the identifying the market. First, we identified the market and we were like, okay, so the sizable base of 2 million youths and we know that Gen Z lives on the internet, right? Where are they hanging out? They're on TikTok. They're on Instagram. Uh, some of them are business owners. Uh, some of them are very entrepreneuristic, um, and the, the, some of them, you know, even like you know things like cryptocurrency and investing at an early on, which is a very different generation from the millennials, the boomers, and the Gen X, right? And we sort of knew if we were going to onboard and sort of be the winning, have a winning formula, we needed to speak in a language that they understand. So first, your tone of voice in terms of talking to a Gen Z has to be very relatable. That was the first thing top of mind that we decided we were going to do. We were not going to look like dinosaurs in a room convincing, you know, Gen Zs to come on board and use a product that was outdated. It was very lifestyle driven and it was very, very fit in terms of the market. So that was one. Um, number two, learning when we put the go-to marketing strategy together, we we knew that, you know, we had to look through their data and we had to see like, okay, what was their behavior and their, their, their consumer spend like, right? Where were they hanging out and what were they spending on and what were they thrifting on, right? And what are missed opportunities and what are things that we can offer them? And so we very quickly found out that, you know, um, in data points and research, Gen Zs are unlikely to, like millennials, millennials has this rush and tendency to, I need to buy a house, I need to buy a car, Whereas the Gen Zs are like, yeah, maybe I could rent for a bit, you know, if it, so that I don't need the stress of, you know, purchasing a home first. I would love to travel a little bit more, maybe live, uh, you know, be a digital nomad for six months, experience and explore the world, um, learn more about investing. And then when I'm, I will come back to making such a huge commitment at a later point. So then we realized that, okay, lifestyle, investments and, and, and um, 
having more financial strategies were things that were interested were interesting to them, and they were more likely to use uh, QR codes to scan. The the ease of access of payments was very important to them. They don't like to waste time. Anything beyond a minute is is slow, right? So we knew, okay, that was it. And the third thing is they are very, very incorporated into lifestyle brands. So fashion, travel, and leisure, and shopping, F&B were very, very um, sentimental and very relatable touch points to the Gen Z market. And knowing all of this, we use all these data points to assemble a whole list of merchants, which was how we got AirAsia, we got Zalora, we got Shopee, and, and a lot of partners to come in to build um, just a bundled kind of offer. Um, which was the most competitive one in the market compared to the other two uh, e-wallet players. And what that told us is we had a theory, we validated it with, with, with data and we did our homework and we did our, our MPS. You know, we were asking questions. We were communicating with our audience and asking like, what do you prefer? What brands would you like to see? You know, is this, is this lucrative, um, you know, offer for you? And with all of these conversational two 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 way conversations, we were able to win so many people over, and that translated into an acquisition play in terms of how many people signed up um, to BigPay and actually got um, you know the wallet during that campaign timeline. And we were also notably you know the crowd the choices favorite because we got organic brand love from you know um, whether it is from social media whether it is from advocacy on forums, you could just see it flying around. And I think organic uh, PR as well was a very, very good track uh, metrics that we, we saw. And we didn't pay for those things. And we were getting a lot of brand love. We were getting a lot of customers' advocacies, naturally a very organic skill. And I think for me, you know, just looking at this and the numbers that, that translated after that and in terms of how it continued um, into customers continuously adopting the product was for me, a, a success. And this was a very, very good um, example at a very, very high impact campaign for us. Wow. Um, you mentioned a lot of a lot of parts that you actually leverage data points. Yeah. About where Zenzing Hangout, um, you know, what kind of brand they probably resonate with, and that helps to put together a vendor list that you will do strategic partnership with. Um, but I... I, I heard a lot of stories around people when, and the way you described just now is like, you know, this is the insight that you can use, which is not a common thing for a lot of people who need to deal with data and research. So I'm curious, when you are trying to look for this kind of data points, right, what are the biggest challenges you face? And how do you overcome that? First, you have to know what you're looking for, right? A lot of people look at data and they come through a bunch of data, but they don't know exactly the parameters of what they're looking for. So you could be looking for a needle in haystack or you could be looking for the right data, wrong project, you know, not knowing how to marry it, right? And I think in data as well, data on alone, it tells you a story if you're willing to connect it. So the biggest challenge is, is in itself is that data presents a lot of opportunities, but you need to put specific parameters around it um, so that you can connect the dots and align it to your opportunities and the goals that you really want to do. Be clear of your campaign objectives. If, if this is an acquisition play or this is a retention play or this is a conversion play, first align that and then look at the data in terms of your customers and then build the parameters around and centric to your campaign so that you don't get frustrated when you don't see things happen and that you are eliminating as much possible errors that are going to factor and affect your campaign and your efficacies. 
um, and then eventually, I think, set very precise um, targeting and, and parameters with data. So, right, if you're looking to do, um, a, for, for example, like a, a conversion play, right, I would say, okay, I'm, I'm planning to convert this customer um, to, to, to buy another product, to be a, a frequent user of another product. But if I am targeting a, a customer only who has predominantly been inactive, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm targeting a cross-sell in terms of a very highly active engaging campaign. It's a little bit of a mismatch. And I'll give you an example of that, right? For example, me as a payments platform, I noticed that my customer has, you know, stored their cart on file and they have enabled, you know, ID metrics, right? So what it tells me is that this customer likes convenience and this customer does not want to go through the hassle of inputting, you know, um, their cart numbers or their, their information. They preferred a seamless experience and less friction as possible. Now, onto the next point, me as a business, knowing this and knowing that this customer usually traditionally spends more on high ticket items. Now, as a business, I would say, okay, most of the transactions have gone through and it doesn't look like this person has a problem with purchasing. As a business, I would then offer this customer a premium product, right? Like, hey, maybe you are, you are, you are an all-time traveler and you, you, know, you spend this kind of, um, you know, four to 500 uh, ringgit um, average. Now, what if you were to also buy insurance on your travel? You know, what if you were also to buy a premium travel package, right? That has a little bit more advantage to your customers. So pairing the right data and, and sort of pairing and knowing what to look for and putting the right parameters is very important. Got it. And just now, one of the data that you mentioned is MPS. So you diligently, for that project, you keep actually keeping track of basically the MPS score. Now, I've heard people say, some, some articles say, MPS is outdated. Okay. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm serious on debates over here. What's your point of view? MPS is not outdated, right? Because you have to understand, it's just like marketing, right? Marketing transcends over time. We evolve. And that is always going to be the heart and secret sauce of the magic of being in this role. Now, MPS has work. And the reason why it don't work is probably you're not asking the right questions or the format is outdated, right? There are different ways that you can engage your customers and asking MPS. And I think this is still a practice that we do at BigPay um, and it's proven very effective and it's given us extra uh, brownie points, I guess, from customers because they felt they felt hurt and they felt that as a, as a business, we are engaging them in a, in a two-way conversation and we're asking them. Like, what are your preferences? What do you think about this? Is there something that you we could improve or is there something that you particularly enjoy? You know, and what is something that you would like to see, you know, continuingly uh, as you continuously use our product um, in this line of service? So for me, it is always making sure you are asking questions in the right tone of voice, in the right format, and you making sure that you do it in a way that is most up to date, right? So once you have those things in place, I think it remains a very valuable tool to any business. Is there any uh, examples that you, pro you potentially can share around what are the potential actions that you have actually taken based on the MPS findings? Okay. No, this is a great question. Um, and yeah, absolutely. So I think marketing to different markets is very different. So how you would market in Malaysia versus how you would market to Singapore is very different. And when we were expanding BigPay into the Singapore market, 
we had to relearn behaviors and, and we had to, we cannot assume that the data points that we had in the Malaysian market is going to apply across the board, right? Yes, everybody needs financial services. Yes, everybody wants to be a millionaire and everybody wants to have the best product, right? But the market behavior and maturity and receptiveness is completely different ballgame. So when we were in Singapore, we had to talk to as many people as possible uh, in terms of what would their brand perception towards big pay. Uh, what would they? What did they like most upon the onboarding experiences? What we thought we could do better as a brand, and who we thought you know, um, uh, who they would like to see us collaborate with to give them a value-added offer um, to be competitive and to have the right USPs in the market. And upon discovery, we realized that certain brands, for example, like Shopback and Shopee, were very top of mind brands. And um, because they had seen that synergy with us in Malaysia, we have very strong affiliation with these partners in Malaysia. So we were like, oh, okay, you know, now we have the right um, answers and, you know, looking at these data points and, and market and consumer demand and market. And we were like, okay, it, it makes sense to strike a synergy collaboration in these markets in Singapore and to talk to these counterparts. Um, we also knew as a product, the demand for digital assets was so much more higher, okay? So everyone's into the web-free craze, cryptocurrency. I will not get into the whole situation and what's happening in that market. Um, that will be for another episode. That will be for another day. I would love to go about it, but this would have been a five-hour conversation. Um, so I think cryptocurrency, you know, the transition into web3, and so many people are now moving into ownership of digital assets. And with the Singapore market, there was just so much more of a higher appetite and they were already sort of educated investors and having knowing that that put cryptocurrency a more priority product in our roadmap as a business we made that decision there was a market demand for it and every marketer knows this right you got to act on a timely manner the moment you don't strike the iron when it's hot it you've lost the plot and it's a it's a missed opportunity right it's opportunity cost for you as a business so we 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 moved very quickly based on the data that we had from mps and that's exactly why we delivered um, our crypto um, exchange and, and we delivered a, a crypto, we got our licensing and, and we basically rolled out in the market in our offerings um, Q3 last year. I want to shift a little bit into how would, how do you define success in either marketing or as an organization and whether or not this has evolved over time? Hmm. This is a very, very good question. Defining success. Hmm. I think success is a very subjective thing, right? Um, success yeah. looks very different to you. It looks very different to me. It looks very different to my, my parents. Um, but I think, you know, as an organization, I would, I would tackle that one because we've, we've, we've spoken quite broadly and quite a lot in terms of marketing relations, right? But I would like to touch on it from an organization standpoint and I will tell you why it's important later. Um, having buy-ins on your marketing effort across the board um, and your campaigns on a 360 level um, and just having everyone have the same sense or maybe a certain percentage of advocacy and a sense of pride and ownership um, in terms of, uh, you know, the the campaigns is a success to me because essentially you have successfully evangelized the goal and the outcome and the process. And if it means you have successfully told a story even within your organization, that they are now willing to be part of your campaign and campaign 
the messaging for you. So everyone has skin in the game. Um, and I think successful marketing as an organization is also, you know, seeing the pride and joy of, you know, your employees, um, advocating the brand, you know, um, having tied in with the mission of the product that you want to do, feeling a sense of belonging in terms of your DNA. Um, and I think, you know, um, if they naturally would even refer it to their friends and family, right? The, the whole evangelism that comes from a very natural state without you having to push uh, or for it is the winning, I mean, uh, the winning metric. I think it was, it's what determines success. Get people in the organizations involved. Everyone is going to come together and you're going to have a collective win. And I promise you, from the experiences I've had four years in Big Pay, it's it's so magical and it's it's one of the best feelings ever because everybody wins and everybody is now geared for the success of this project. I have a lot of things that I wanted to, you know, ask here. Because <laughs> uh, actually, this is exactly one of the questions that I want to ask just now because you you bring on David and Goliath two times, right? And and when you are bringing that examples, right, this the thing that came to my mind is now you need a team to to fight with Goliath, but you need an aligned team, especially when if you are a David team, how do you align them? So you just not ask, uh, you just not answer that question so without me asking, which is you need to give a size of the pie. Can you give us a specific examples of like, how exactly do you do that? Hmm. And and in a way that is genuine, right? I think people will sense that it is not not, not really come from originally. So, so, so I'm curious how do you how do you go about this? I think the first thing that people need to know, and the first thing from personal experience is, no matter what business you're in, you need to know that you're in the business of people. Mm. Right. That's the first thing. And what I what I where I'm going with that is, you need to come in and know that you spend nine to five or the most time you're going to spend in the office, right, are with your colleagues and they become like a second set of friends or family that you're going to have. Now, if you build relationships with these, with these people around you, you understand what makes them tick and you understand their personal goals and philosophy. And you can never run a, a project or work in a company and be completely detached. I just, I just don't believe in it. And I think that most people, um, when you have that proximity and you have a team that is, is, is bonded together and you just generally have, I'm not saying that you need to tell your deepest secrets and go for, you know, kumbaya sessions and whatnot. I'm saying know who, know what's happening with your neighbor, right? Know that, okay, maybe my neighbor, uh, Kimi is having a bad day. You know, she's going through, she's going through some stuff and, you know, elevate something or, knowing that my other colleague um, has certain aspirations within the organization. And if you are within your means to help them achieve that, that's not really in your KPI in terms of your work metrics, but that's on a human metrics. And I think that's one of the big things that people miss out. Um, we are often so focused on chasing KPIs and metrics that are given you know, by our bosses or by you know, our organizations. We forget to check in with the human metrics with the people around us. So if we buy that in and we actually have relationships with people, your workload is going to become so much more collaborative. It's going to become easier for you. And it's going to be easier for you to lobby something with so much more support. 
because people know who you are and the DNA of who you, you know, is your essence and, and who you are and, and you can't fake it. You're spending so much time interacting with people, right? It's people are going to know you for that. And so I would say that have relationships with people, know that you're in the people business and build these relationships and then together collectively go and attack it, you know? And, and that's exactly why I would go back to the example of Ipomula, right? We were actually the smallest and leanest teams compared to all of the, the competitors and the wallets in the market. But we came out um, with a cheap recognition from Ministry of Finance and the Prime Minister's office saying that this is such a well thought of you know, experience from end to end, from digital, from your booth to your engagement, to your buzz and to you know, your tech uh, experiences, your onboarding experiences, it has been fantastic. And I'll tell you something, I almost cried listening to that in person because God knows leading a project at that high level, it meant that I couldn't mess up, right? I, I would not let myself. <laughs> um, and there were just so many things on my shoulder that we were carrying on. It's it product launch, it was, it was, you know, presenting to the prime minister. God knows I was I was preparing for then. That was, that's a different story, right? But we, we didn't have the biggest team, but we had the A team. And the reason why the A team could come together was because the A team knew skill sets and strengths. So maybe I was really good at coordination and bringing the band together. Maybe maybe my my you know my colleague X, uh, X is really good at checking and making sure everything is is done on time. You're very good in terms of time management. And then maybe colleague C is very good in communication and making sure that. Uh, a mandate is socialized across and nobody gets left behind. So you need to tap into strengths from all your team to make sure you cover it. Delegate it, trust your teammates and have proximity with them. That's what's going to let you win, regardless of how tall the order is, no matter what goliaths you're going to go through in projects, that is what is going to help you in the long run. I love that. I think you you probably just make the title of our show, Human Metrics Matters, in order to win. Well, with that, we have reached uh, our very exciting lightning round. Uh, we call it lightning round because we actually have four quick questions for you. Um, okay. Are you ready? God, I hope I am. <laughs> okay, let's, do <laughs> let's do it. Okay. Smart is always like very exciting, but you're like, what was she going to ask? <laughs> Yay. Yes. Okay. Uh, the power is on my hand. Um, question number one. <laughs> what are... What are the most important skills that a marketer should have, in your opinion? Ah, okay. Skills as a marketer. Number one, never be afraid to experiment. Um, you know, it's a really highly creative job. So just experiment, experiment. Um, don't be afraid of making mistakes, right? The worst thing that you can do is the mistake. And once you've made the mistake, it's done. And you'll just figure out another way that didn't work, right? But don't make mistakes that cost your business millions of dollars. <laughs> I just had to put that caveat there. Um, keep yourself updated with market trends because you are in the front line of your business success, to be honest. You are the first line of defense of your company and you are the informed person that's going to make or break your business in terms of how much they're going to go and I mean, market, uh, market entries and barriers that you're going to cross. Um, know how to keep your language simple know how to tell stories, um, and talk to your peers, right? Because you may have a great idea, but your peers always offer a different standpoint. So 
we are all looking at the same things, but the way we infer it, the way we approach it is very different. So always talk to your peers. That's where best ideas or you, know, you can solidify your, 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 your decisions or your ideas. And um, I think last but not least is, you know, enjoy the process. Always enjoy the process. Well, you, 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 uh, although you say you're not sure if you're ready, but you aced, you aced this because you kind of already answered my second question, which is supposed to be, what advice would you give to someone who interested to pursue a career in marketing? But I think a lot of the things that you say just not really apply. Oh, actually, you know what? I, I could take that. And because I think, I think, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. It's okay. We'll, we'll give it, we'll consider it a bonus, right? Um, if someone wants to pursue a career in marketing, I'll just say go for it. What's the worst that can happen, right? Like if you if you try it and you fail, you've just figured this is not for you and you can pivot and move on, right? But if you try and you succeed, you would have hit goal and you would have found somewhere you belong. And personally, you know, that's why Nike, like the saying is so famous, just do it. And personally, I'll add the final touch, which is you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So just do it. Love that. Um, my third question, what are the key data or key metrics that you monitor in either when you're building a marketing or brand? Hmm. Uh, I would look at brand sentiment. Uh, I think there are four prongs of this, right? So first is brand sentiment, knowing what your customers are saying about you, whether positive or negative, so that you can pulse check in terms of whether you're faring good as a brand in the market. Um, and then, you know, seeing if you have, if you have budget for it, social media tools, great for that. Uh, brand share, are you your customer's top of mind choice? Um, and, and, and whether they are organically evangelizing your brand for you, that's how you know. Um, and then the other two would be acquisition or retention. So for the acquisition bit, I would say looking at just how much of customers are growing in your market in, in terms of the market that you're marketing to. Um, and the retention is just knowing that, you know, how much of product adoption is, is happening and, and customers staying with you and adopting different lines of products. Um, because that would then tell you um, that they, that your product is actually giving a added value, you know, to their lives, is making their lives better. Um, and it's, yeah, essentially you would know that it's working, right? That the formula and the metrics is working. Awesome. Uh, the four key, that, yeah, for the four key metrics that you look into. My last question. What is the one marketing book or resources that you would recommend? Books. Oh, uh, you know, before I answer which title, uh, this is something that I would tell a lot of people, but only because this has been something that's been asked to me quite recently a lot, right? So I would say, don't read a book just because for the sake of reading it. Um, go for a title that in inspires you or provokes you, right? And doesn't matter what that is. Um, just a title that, that really, really grabs your attention. Um, if it comes to marketing, honestly, there are two books, uh, a bit of a wild card here. So there's this book called The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. This book was published all the way, I think, in the early 90s, right? I was probably so young, so, so young. And um, I would say that this book is perfect for a blend of marketing veterans to remind us of the commandments of marketing. It's a good refresher. And it's something to keep us in line and check to make sure that we upheld ourselves to that standard. And for those who are looking for a career in marketing or who are new and just need something that is not overcomplicated, not drowned in jargons and, you know, not overwhelmed, this is a perfect starting point. 
for those who are a little bit more seasoned, may I offer the title of uh, Made in the Future? Um, this was a gifted book to me, uh, very I think very recently, but I think this is marketing in the modern day and we're talking about changes in you know media, content and everything. Um, customers buy, sell perceptions and, and processes and logic. And this is great for all marketers who want to thrive in a very competitive landscape when you are fighting for attention with all other businesses. Um, and this is kind of the book that tells us the transition between the marketing styles of Kodak and Apple, who's, mm. yeah. So read that book. I think it's so great because it gave me so much perspective. Yeah. Now, the second one is something I haven't checked out before. I'm definitely going to look over that one. You love to give bonus. Thank, thank you, Nina. Uh, one final, final questions. Where can folks find you if they want to reach out and learn more about what you're up to? Uh, this is not a trick question, right? <laughs> no, 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 not a trick question. <laughs> well, uh, I think the best place to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Gianina. And I think you should be able to find me because I haven't come across anyone with the, my name, I mean, personally. Um, so yeah, I like con connecting with people. Uh, if you ever want to exchange ideas, you know, bounce off certain, certain concepts or just connect and talk about industries, whether it's payments, crypto, anything. Yeah, I think LinkedIn is the best place to do it. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you once again for being here. Uh, thank you so much, Nina. This thank has been a very awesome learning. I know. This has been a great conversation and, and thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. If you find this valuable, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Also, please consider giving us a rating or leaving us a review because this really can help other listeners to find the podcast. You can find all the episodes or learn more about this podcast at was.ai. See you in the next episode. Thank you.